So I convey to you and confer upon you the title Ambassador for Christ. Hallelujah. So Pastor Rafael Cruz, come on up and bless us. Well, I'll tell you, uh, Greg, I'm going to go a little beyond what you read because the next verse is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And he said, but he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us that we may be made or that we may become the righteousness of God in him. You see, at the cross, there was an exchange of robes. Jesus put on our filthy rags. The book of Isaiah says the best in us is like filthy rags before the Lord. So Jesus put on our filthy rags that we may put on his robe of righteousness. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, one of these days I'll come back here and teach on blood covenant. And one of the steps of covenant was exchanging of robes. Jesus became who you were so you may become who he is. Amen. He literally became sin so you would become righteousness. And listen to me well. God sees you right now, if you are in Christ, as righteous as Jesus. Yes. As righteous as Jesus. That's why Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, in your Bible... If you have a King James or a New King James or something like that, Romans 8.1 probably says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The second half of Romans 8.1 is not in the earliest manuscripts. In the earliest manuscripts, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, period. That is an unconditional promise. So if you feel condemnation, that didn't come from God, that didn't come from the Holy Spirit, condemnation, all of it comes from the devil. Jesus took all the condemnation upon himself that we may be totally free from condemnation. You are, as Ephesians chapter 1 says, accepted in the beloved. He accepts you because he's made you as righteous as Jesus. And you, if you feel uh, a little squirmish about that, oh, how can I say that I am as righteous as Jesus? Let me tell you, you got two choices. You either have the righteousness of God, or you have self-righteousness. Take your pick. Wow. I'd rather take his righteousness. Amen. And you see, when you realize that his righteousness is put on you, the devil has no power over you. No power whatsoever. Because the devil, the ministry of the devil is condemnation. As a matter of fact, as, as Anne, Anne Stacy. What a jewel, what a gift to the body of Christ is this young lady. 
And as we were driving, she was quoting John 10.10. 10. And uh, so many people misquote John 10.10. 10. I've heard so many people, including pastors, quote John 10.10. 10. The thief comes not but to kill, steal, and destroy. That's not what it says. What it says is the thief comes not but to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And of those three, the most important is steal. The ministry of the devil is to steal the word of God from your heart. And if he can steal the word of God, he can kill you and destroy you. Okay? Remember the first, the first one of the four uh, passages on uh, Mark chapter 4 about the parable of the sower? Yeah. What is the first soil? It's a soil where the seed falls by the wayside and the birds of the air come and steal the word. Anytime you see in scripture the birds of the air or the beasts of the field, it is always, always, always talking about demons. The devil comes to steal the word. And if he can steal the word, he can kill you and destroy you. Well, this is not what the pastor asked me to talk about, but I just, uh, that goes. Anyway, I want to talk to you about the greatness of America. We are so blessed. We live in the greatest country on the face of the earth. And as a matter of fact, let's just boast a little bit about where we are. We live in the greatest state within the greatest country on the face of the earth. And I'll tell you, if, uh, you know, one of the, the first song we sang was about foundation. God being our foundation. Second Corinthians chapter 3 verse 11 says, For no other foundation can any man lay than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Well, let me tell you, America was built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. You know, before those pilgrims got off the boat in Plymouth, Massachusetts, they penned a document. It was called the Mayflower Compact, and it began by stating their purpose for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. What a glorious foundation. That is the foundation of America for the glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. It continues, in the presence of God, we covenant and combine ourselves together to form a civic body politic. In other words, some form of government. Why? For our better ordering and preservation and furtherance of the ends aforesaid. What are the ends aforesaid? The glory of God and the advancement of the Christian faith. I'll tell you, you've uh, probably learned in college or in primary school that the American Revolution started in the 1770s. But did you know that that's not true? The American Revolution really started in the 1730s 
with preachers like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and many others. And a little later on, a fiery black preacher by the name of Harry Hoosier, who was the greatest evangelist in the late 1700s. As a matter of fact, he evangelized practically all of Indiana, which was called the West at the time. Most of the Indiana, people in Indiana don't know that they're called Hoosiers because of Harry Hoosier, who was called at his time the greatest orator in America. So it was the first great awakening that was the spark that ignited the American Revolution. And you know, uh, I am going to talk about some history that uh, some of you may have never heard. Uh, I'm, I'm really, really uh, sad that they took the kids out because I think the kids needed to hear this. Because if they are in public school, they probably don't know any of what I'm going to talk about and they need to know. So parents, you have the responsibility to teach them. But you know, uh, we look at uh, the American Revolution. And we don't know it because it's not in the history books. It's been erased. The American Revolution was fought by pastors. They wake, they, 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 that first great awakening was the spark that ignited the American Revolution. If you look at the Declaration of Independence... I count 26 grievances against King George in the Declaration of Independence. Did you know that each and every one of those grievances were preached from the pulpits of America for 10 years? 10 years, pastors from the pulpit calling out King George for the atrocities that the British were perpetrating against the colonies. The question that begs an answer is, where are those pastors today? The majority are hiding behind their pulpits, scared to death of not being, quote, politically correct. Well, it is about time we become biblically correct instead of politically correct. Praise God. You are blessed with a pastor that is bold in preaching the whole counsel of God. But let me tell you, there are many churches where pastors are just tickling men's and women's ears, scared to death to offend anybody. Well, read the Gospels. Do you think Jesus was concerned about not offending anybody? On the contrary, he was on their faces. And who did he confront more than anybody else? Let's just get it out of the way. Who did he confront more than anybody else? The political establishment. You got to realize the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, the priesthood, the high priest, the king, they were all puppets of Rome. As a matter of fact, they even had to prostitute their theology to accommodate worshiping Caesar as a god. 
And he called them what? White sepulchers. So, uh, there is no excuse. But I'll tell you, we look at, uh, let's go back to American history. Paul Revere. You read about Paul Revere. The British are coming. The British are coming. Did you know that Paul Revere was going to some place in specific? He was going to the home of a pastor, a pastor by the name of Jonas Clark. By the way, did you know that, was, that there was also a black patriot riding with Paul Revere? His name was Wentworth Cheswell, first African-American to be in public office in America. And so they went to the church of Pastor Jonas Clark. The very first battle for our independence was the Battle of Lexington. It was fought right outside the church of Pastor Jonas Clark. All of the colonists who died in that battle, except one, were members of Pastor Jonas Clark's church. Because the pastor and all the men from the congregation were at the forefront of that battle. As a matter of fact, I wrote a book about six years ago, and in one of the appendices of that book, I have Pastor Jonas Clark's message, his preaching the Sunday after that battle. And he recounts the battle in his preaching. So anyway, second battle for our independence, the Battle of Concord fought right outside the church at Concord. And then the British began, I mean the the British began retreating northward towards Boston. And history tells us that militias engaged them on the road and killed some 600 British soldiers as they retreated back to Boston. What history does not tell you because it has been erased is that those militias were primarily composed of pastors and the men from their congregation. Again, the question is, where are those pastors today? Now, let me tell you about my favorite pastor. His name was John Peter Muhlenberg. He was one of many best pastors that the British greatly feared. They called them the Black Robe Regiment because they all wore long black robes. Pastor John Peter Muhlenberg is preaching one day. He was a Lutheran pastor in Woodstock, Virginia. He's preaching one day in early 1776 on Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He concludes his message with verse 8 that says, There's a time for war and a time for peace. He pulls a musket from behind the pulpit, and he says, this is a time for war. He unbuttons his black robe to uncover his colonel's uniform in the Continental Army. He turns towards the congregation, and he asks, how many of you will follow me to go fight for our independence? 300 men joined Pastor Colonel John Peter Muhlenberg that Sunday 
to go fight for our independence. Now, meanwhile, Peter had a brother, Frederick Muhlenberg, also a pastor in New York City. And Frederick is sending letters to Peter. For the sake of the few young people here, letters is what we use before the time of email and text. <laughs> and so he's sending these letters to Peter. Separation of church and state. You shouldn't be involved in politics. You should just be preaching the gospel until the British burn Frederick's church. And then he said, well, maybe I better get involved. <laughs> How many of you have seen the movie The Patriot? Let me see your hands. Many of you. Well, do you remember in that movie the British burning a church? Well, the British burned many churches. Just in New York City, they burned 19 churches. Do you know why? Because the revolution was being fostered in the churches. Again, I got to ask the question, where are those churches today? Praise God, there are a few, like this church. But there are many churches where they're just hiding behind the pulpit or hiding under the pew, scared to death to offend anybody, and just going along to get along. But I'll tell you what. So here's the interesting thing. Frederick Muhlenberg became the first speaker in the house, of the house after this country was founded. And his brother Peter was a congressman in that first Congress. And the two of them were the driving force before the, for the writing of the First Amendment to the Constitution that gives us all our religious rights and our freedom of expression, et cetera, et cetera. So I'll tell you, it behooves us to get involved. But you know, pastors give all kinds of excuses not to get involved. One of them that I have heard so many times and a pastor normally uses a, a voice like this. God just called me to preach the gospel. <laughs> and that kind of arrogant voice. And my answer to that pastor is, well, tell me what is the gospel? Because the gospel is a lot more than John 3.16. As a matter of fact, the apostle Peter in the book of Acts, one said, my hands are free from the blood of all men because I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God goes from Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. And let me tell you, the word of God has a lot to say about politics. As a matter of fact, let me just give you a couple of for instances. Did you know that the Bible tells you exactly who to vote for? Let me put it in context. Moses has just crossed the Red Sea. And Moses is in the wilderness trying to govern about 2 million people. The Bible says 600,000 men plus women and children, so at least 2 million. 
and Moses is going bananas. And here comes his father-in-law, Jethro. And he says in Exodus chapter 18, Moses, what you're doing is not good. And in Exodus 18, 21, God speaks to Moses through Jethro. And he says, you select from among the people. Now that word select is the same word for elect. You select from among the people, and then he gives four qualifications. Able men and women, of course, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. That's how you vet every candidate. Able men. What does that mean? You elect men and women who are capable of doing the job. Number two, such as fear God. Let me tell you, we need to elect men and women of God. Men and women that are going to act and going to govern in accordance with the principles of the word of God. Able men, such as fear God. Number three, men of truth. Let me tell you what, there's so many politicians that lie all the time. As a matter of fact, let me give you a rule of thumb. Don't believe what a candidate for public office tells you. Because they're going to tell you what they think you want to hear. Jesus said, ye shall know them by their fruit. You need to do some fruit checking. Don't tell me, show me. My son likes to put it this way. Show me your scars. So show me where you've been in the battle. Show me, don't tell me. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth. Number four, hating covetousness. Covetousness is the same as greed. But let me tell you, covetousness in politics It's not primarily about money. It is about power. Power and control. Lord Acton once says, power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. Many politicians get drunk with power. And as a matter of fact, they convince themselves that we work for them. But the reality is the opposite. What are the first three words in our Constitution? We, the people. We, the people, are the rulers. And they work for us. We don't work for them. They work for us. And not only that, we have the power to hire them and to fire them. How do we do that? Through our vote. So if you don't vote... You relinquish that power. Okay? Now let's go back to Exodus 18.21. So, select from among the people, able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. And then he continues, and set them up as rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of ten. So here is the model. Moses, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of ten. That's equivalent to federal government, state government, county government, local government. 
And then in verse 22, it says, and you take up to Moses, that means to the federal government, only matters of great importance. Everything else you handle yourself at the local level. You know what that is? That is the essence of federalism. That is the essence of limited government. That's Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution called the Enumerated Powers of Congress. Article 1, Section 8 only has 18 powers that Congress can act on. If it's not listed in Article 1, Section 8, the federal government has no jurisdiction. And all those powers are reserved to the states. Let me give you some examples. The word education is not in Article 1, Section 8. And does it make any sense to have some unelected bureaucrats in Washington, D.C., telling us what our children should be taught? No, that decision needs to be at the local level with a local school board, hopefully run by you and I. Let me tell you another word that is not in Article 1, Section 8. The word life. Praise God, we're going to see the end of Roe v. Wade later on this year. There is no, like they tell you, there is no constitutional right to abortion. That will be like a constitutional right to murder. Don't buy this garbage well, it is a fetus, or I heard someone in, in a political speech over the radio once saying, well, those are parasitic cells. That's an abomination before God. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5 says, before you were conceived in your mother's womb, I knew you. That settles when life starts. It starts even before conception. So, we need to get back to just those 18 enumerated powers. And 10th Amendment of the Constitution say that everything not related to the federal government, all those powers reside in the states. So we will see Roe v. Wade overturned. Yes. Now, let's be clear, that doesn't end abortion in America. That just brings it to the states. And as of now, probably about 35 states will either restrict or eliminate abortion. There will be about 15 states that will go the other way. Like there is at least one state that has already declared that children can be killed not only the nine, nine months of gestation, but during the first two months of life. That just happened in California. And they are legalizing killing a baby up to two months after birth. That's murder. Well, it's all murder. Even in the womb, it's murder. But on the current law, that's infanticide. So, but we live in the age of lawlessness. We are living in the age of lawlessness. But I'll tell you, it's not a time to despair. It's not a time of doom and gloom because I'll tell you what, greater is he. Amen. Greater is he that's in you than he that is in the world. And I'll tell you what, 
God plus you is a majority. I take, as a matter of fact, God by himself is a majority. If God is for you, who can be against you? So you see, we cannot just go in a corner and sulk and say, oh my, oh my, oh my, America is doomed. This is a call to action. Let me tell you, Proverbs 29.2 says, when the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked bear it through, people mourn. But if the righteous are not running for office, if the righteous are not even voting, then what's left? The wicked electing the wicked. And it becomes our fault. It becomes our fault. You know, do you realize how privileged we are in America? And we take our vote so flippantly. Let me give you some indicting statistics. This is shameful. George Barna, who does surveys among evangelical Christians, says that in the average church in America, 50% of the people in the church are not even registered to vote. And of the ones that are registered, only half of them are voting. That means three out of four Christians don't even vote. And they relinquish their civic responsibility. And here is their excuse. Politics is a dirty business. I don't want any part of it. Have you heard it? You can talk to me. Have you heard it? Okay, I'm not going to ask you if you said it. Politics is a dirty business. I don't want any part of it. Again, let's go back to Proverbs 29.2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, people mourn. Politics is a dirty business because the people of God, the people of principle, have acquiesced, have run a wall. We have a responsibility. You know, the Bible is all about stewardship. Our life on this earth, if you could concentrate it in one word, is stewardship. Stewardship. Even in the garden. The very first thing that God told Adam is, you go take care of the garden, tend, the gar- tend to the garden, care for it. That's a stewardship responsibility. And then in Genesis 1.28, he gave him a stewardship responsibility over all of creation. It's all about stewardship. Well, we have been given the greatest country on the face of the earth. And we have a stewardship responsibility over that. As a matter of fact, this book, this is God. John chapter 1, verses 1, 2, and 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. And verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Those three verses mean that Jesus and this book are one and the same. 
This is Jesus speaking to you and I. That means every word, every word in this book is the word of God. And we can't just take it flippantly. I know so many churches that read the Bible with a pair of scissors. Well, this passage here does not agree with my, quote, denominational doctrine. Let's cut it out. And different denominations cut out different passages. Read the last chapter of Revelation about what it says about those who add or subtract from the word of God. And let me just give you a word of advice. If your denominational doctrine does not agree with the Bible, don't throw out the Bible. Throw out the denominational doctrine. You must believe the word of God. This is God's truth from beginning to end. And I'll tell you what. Truth, and I mentioned that to somebody yesterday the day before. Truth is not a what. Truth is a who. His name is Jesus. And every word in that book is Jesus speaking to you and I. And so, to whom much is given, much is required. Let me talk about a couple of more of the objections that I get from preachers. Well, Jesus said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. And the way that many, many pastors and Christians interpret that verse is divorce yourself from Caesar. But that's not what Jesus was saying. What Jesus was saying was this. In the kingdom of God, you have certain responsibilities and you must be faithful to those responsibilities. But similarly, in the civic society, you also have responsibilities and you must also be faithful to those responsibilities. We need to realize that, you know, let me give you the most common excuse. The most common excuse is separation of church and state. Uh, You hear it all the time. It is the greatest excuse of all. As a matter of fact, so many people don't even know that separation of church and state is neither in the Constitution nor in the Declaration. Where did it come from? Well, to explain that, we need to... Go back to history a little bit. About 400 years ago, early 1600s, the king of England, who was a Catholic, decided to rebel against the pope in Rome and become his own pope. And he established what was called the Anglican Church, the Church of England. And if you were in in England in the early 1600s, and you were not a member of the Church of England, you were considered a heretic, and you were persecuted. That's what drove the pilgrims to America, seeking the freedom to worship Almighty God. Now let's move forward 200 years to the time that this constitutional representative republic was formed. And by the way, 
Let me make a parenthesis. Constitutional representative republic. We are not a democracy. Democracy has never worked. Democracy is the rule of the majority. Under a democracy, the minority has no rights. Let me give you the perfect example of a democracy, Rwanda, the Hoodies and the Tutsis. The 80% killed the 20%. Over a million people were killed in Rwanda under the disguise of democracy. No, 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 no. We are not a democracy under the rule of the majority, which is called mob rule. No, we are a constitutional representative republic under the rule of law where the rights of every individual is protected. As a matter of fact, I'll, well, I'll get to the Constitution in a couple of minutes. Let me finish the story about this separation of church and state. So, all 13 colonies were concerned. The Danbury Baptists, and I got to make another, another parenthesis because we need to learn history, and most people don't know history. Why the Danbury Baptists? Did you know that the 13 colonies, each one of them basically only had one denomination? Rhode Island was Baptist. Massachusetts was Congregationalist. Maryland was Catholic. Uh, Pennsylvania was Quaker. Virginia was mostly Lutheran with a little bit of Anglican. Why did they all have one denomination? You know why? Because it was pastors and the men and women from their congregations who founded the colonies. As a matter of fact, I would like to give you some homework. Go search for the 13 original constitutions. In all but one, you had to be a believer in Jesus Christ to run for public office. It was a requirement. We've come a long ways from that, haven't we? So anyway, the Danbury Baptists write a letter to then President Thomas Jefferson concerned as to whether this new government was going to impose a state denomination upon them. Another parenthesis. When you see the word religion on the Constitution, what they meant was Christian denominations because they were all Christians. 99% of America was Christian. There was 1% Jewish. So they were all concerned. The Danbury Baptists were actually expressing the concern of all 13 states. So Jefferson wants to appease their fears, and he begins this letter back saying, believing with you that religion is a matter that lays solely between man and his God, that he owes account to no one for his faith or his worship. He continues that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In other words, he quotes verbatim from the First Amendment of the Constitution. And then he says, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. If you look at those three statements in context, it is absolutely obvious that Jefferson is talking about a one-way wall. A one-way wall to prevent government from 
imposing a state denomination upon we the people. A one-way wall to prevent government from interfering with our free exercise of religion. In no way, shape, or form could you infer that Jefferson was saying that we, the church, should not be involved in every area of society, including government. As a matter of fact, Jesus said exactly the opposite. In Matthew 5, Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. Salt is a preserver. But in order for salt to preserve something, you have to put it upon that which you want to preserve. That's out there in the marketplace. Jesus also said, you're the light of the world. You know, light is worthless unless you point it to darkness. Again, that's out there in the marketplace. Listen to me carefully. We have to stop just playing church inside the four walls. We got to take the church out there to the marketplace. There is a whole world dying out there in darkness, and you have the light. Let me step on some toes. What are you doing with your light? What are you doing with your light? Are you hiding it under a bushel? Or are you lifting it up high? Are you hiding it under your pew or pastors? Are you hiding it behind your pulpit? Light is worthless unless you point it to darkness. Let me tell you. Let me uh, just share something from the leader of the Second Great Awakening, Charles Finney. Charles Finney is speaking to a group of pastors. And he says, if the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan rules the halls of legislation, is that happening today? He says the pulpit is responsible for it. He said, if our politics has become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government is ready to fall away. Is that happening today? Just read today's newspaper. Well, nobody reads newspaper, read the internet. (laughs) He says the pulpit is responsible for it. Now, lest you say, well, he's talking to the pastors. I'm not a pastor. No, 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 no. All of us have a pulpit. Your pulpit Maybe the place where you work. Maybe the place where you go to school. Or maybe your immediate family. Your pulpit is your circle of influence. We all have a pulpit. Now, the greater the pulpit, the greater the responsibilities. And then, then Finney concludes, let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren. But let us be thoroughly aware of our responsibility with respects to the moral of this nation. I have heard ad nauseum pastors tell me politics cannot legislate morality. Have you heard that? That's a lie. Politics legislates morality all the time. All the time. Let me give you five examples. 1960. 
The Bible was banned from all public schools in America. Do you know who printed the first Bible in America? Congress printed the first Bible in America. The U.S. Congress printed the first Bible in America. You know what they did with it? They gave a copy for free to every member of the armed forces. And it became the principal textbook in every school from kindergarten through graduate school. And it was so for over 150 years. In 1962, the Supreme Court banned the Bible from all schools. A year later, prayer was removed from all schools. Maybe there are people here old enough to remember when we prayed in school. That became illegal after 1963. Now some churches, some schools continue to do it, but it was against the law after 1963. But in spite of these two abominable decisions, the church remained silent. Their excuse is a political issue. How can you call prayer a political issue? How can you call Bible study a political issue? But that's exactly what the church did. You know the consequence of that silence? Teen pregnancy skyrocketed after 1963 and so did violent crime. All as a result of removing prayer and Bible study from our schools. We need to put it back. We need to put it back. And I'll tell you, praise God for what started a year ago in South Lake, Texas, where two committed Christians decided enough is enough. And a school board in South Lake had seven just ungodly members of the school board. Three positions became open. They recruited three committed Christians, two men and a woman, to run for school board. They mobilized the churches, and they won those three seats 70-30, just with the vote of the churches. A fourth one came up. They did the same thing, and they elected a fourth and took over the school board and changed all school curriculum. <laughs> that became such an overwhelming thing that it got national news, even to the point that this administration sent six FBI agents to South Lake to see what they could do to reverse this thing. Well, this only happened six months ago, maybe a little longer, nine months ago. As of now, over 200 school boards have been taken over by Christians that have decided enough is enough. See, that's the power of your vote. Okay, 1973. Nine unelected justices of the Supreme Court decided that a baby in the womb did not have that unalienable right to life from our creator. And they legalized abortion. Again, the church remains silent. Same excuse. It's a political issue. How can you call the murder of innocent babies a political issue? You know the consequence of that silence? Over 62 million babies have been murdered in America through abortion. God help us. And then on June 26, June 16, 2015, the Supreme Court decided that God got it wrong. Genesis 1, 27. 
the Trinity is talking among each other. And it says in Genesis 1.27, let us create man in our own image. In the image of God created he them, male and female created he them. And then it says, a few verses later, for this reason, shall a man leave his father and mother and cling to his own wife. It's Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And the fifth one is this woke culture that we are living today, which takes it to new levels, transgenderism, sexual reassignment, sexual dysphoria, sexual fluidity. Children, they, they have, I don't know, 76 different pronouns you can use for children. You cannot call a boy a boy or a girl a girl or a he or a she. It is craziness. It is, you know, professing to be wise, they become fools. But they are poisoning the minds of our children. And they are confusing our children with this thing, well, God made a mistake. God doesn't make mistakes. Well, uh, you know, you're really a girl, even though you look like a boy, you're really a girl. So, but we, you know, we can do something about it. God help us. God help us. But you see, it is up to you and I. You have the light. Again, to whom much is given, much is required. Galatians chapter 6, verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. Your vote is a seed. Make sure you sow it on fertile ground, where it will produce a harvest a hundredfold, sixtyfold, thirtyfold. We have a responsibility. But you know something? We cannot be silent. Let me talk to you about a couple of preachers in Nazi Germany, and I'll wrap up. One of those was Martin Niemuller. And Pastor Martin Niemuller said, first they came for the socialist. And I did not speak out because I, I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist. And I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. And I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Finally, they came for me. And there was no one left to speak on my behalf. Pastor Niemuller was captured. He spent the rest of the war in a prison camp. He survived the prison camp. There was another pastor. His name was Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. Listen carefully to his next statement. God will not hold us guiltless. Let it sink. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. Silence is not an option. Now, what are we going to do about it? Well, we need to start with 2 Chronicles 7.14. If my people, 
who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Yes, we must begin with prayer. But after the prayer, we got to get off our feet, our knees, and put feet to our prayer. God is calling us to action. Read Luke chapter 19, the parable of the pounds. And the master says, occupy till I come. We must be about our father's business. So what can we do? Step number one. Think about you running for public office. Pastor, think about you running for public office. I'm going to preach at a church next Sunday in the woodlands. The pastor of that church was a state legislature in Texas for eight years. He's now the county judge in Montgomery County. It's totally changed Montgomery County. He's still pastoring his church. I was just speaking at a church in Fort Worth this last week uh, on, I can't remember what day of the week, but the associate pastor of that church is running for state legislature. We need men and women of God in the state legislature. So we need for people of principle, like Exodus 18, 21 said, we need people of God to be running for every position of public office. Number two, pastors, you need to be preaching the whole counsel of God. Stop tickling men's and women's ears. You have a pulpit. Use it to preach truth in every area. When unrighteousness is prevailing in America, we have a responsibility to call it out. We have the responsibility to call it out. You know, I was talking to somebody uh, yesterday, the day before, and I said, you know, Romans 13 tells us to pray for our public officials, but you know something? It doesn't tell us what to pray. I mean, if these people, ungodly people, are going to try to continue to do harm to this country, what I'm praying is God confuse their minds. Lord God, thwart their evil, their evil plans. Destroy their evil plans. We need to pray righteousness. I'm not going to pray, oh Lord, give him wisdom to harm us. No, confound his mind. And number three, make sure that you preach the whole counsel of God. From Genesis to Revelation. Let me tell you, this book's got a lot to say about politics. Ezekiel. Not Ezekiel, I mean, uh, uh, well, Daniel and, uh, gosh, Nehemiah. Both of them were counselors to the king, ungodly kings, and God used them. I mean, in the case of Nehemiah, God even used that ungodly king to finance the rebuilding of, of the wall. See, and, and God used what, what was stated for unrighteousness, he used it for righteousness. And so we see instances in the Bible over and over again of people influencing society. You know, we need to realize we have a responsibility. Now, as I said, we have a privilege 
in this country as a constitutional representative republic. Do you know that most of the population of the world has never, never voted in their lives? The model for government forever has been what they call the divine, the divine right of kings. And the divine right of kings was used as an excuse for perpetrating monarchies and dictatorships throughout the world. America reversed that. And I'll tell you something that you will be thrilled to know. What's our, you don't have a, a timing, do you? Okay, because I'm just getting warmed up. <laughs> but I'll tell you what, we need to realize that you look at the Declaration, you look at the Constitution, you know what their one, their number one source was? The Word of God. As a matter of fact, let me give you a few for instances. Why do we have three branches of government? Isaiah 33:22. God says, I am your king, I'm your judge, I'm your lawgiver. They're the three branches of government. Why do we have a constitutional representative republic and not a democracy? I already quoted you, Exodus 18, 21 and 22. Why do we have the death penalty? Although some liberal states are trying to remove it. Genesis 9, 6. If you kill someone, you pay with your own life. If you shed man's blood by your blood, you will pay for it. What that is saying is life is so precious that if you take a life, you must pay with your own. See, the death penalty is all about protecting life and about exalting the value of life. But liberal politicians have been trying to remove the death penalty. And you know what has happened in those states that they have removed the death penalty? Crime has skyrocketed. And so there is a foundation. Number one source for the Bible, for the Constitution and the Declaration was the Bible. You know number two source? Blackstone's Dictionary of Law. That dictionary of law uses the Bible to define every word. Let me give you, a, for instance, because we have been so duped. Most people talk about the two most ungodly framers. You know who they are, don't you? Who do they call the most two ungodly framers? Jefferson and Franklin, right? The most ungodly of them all. Benjamin Franklin, right? Isn't that the one they call a deist? Let me dispel that error. First of all, I told you at the beginning about George Whitfield. Let me tell you, Benjamin Franklin was such a fan of George Whitfield. George Whitfield had such a booming voice that over a block away, people could hear him clearly. And Jeff, um, Franklin, one time, paced himself backwards to prove it. And he, he would say, well, I love George Whitfield, but I have to go see him without my purse, because if I have my purse, I'll give him all my money. <laughs> you know, at the University of Pennsylvania, there's a huge building that uh, Franklin built for Whitfield. 
and that was donated to the University of Pennsylvania. Who do you think founded the abolitionist society in America? Benjamin Franklin. But let me tell you about this so-called ungodly deist. The Constitutional Convention had just started. It had been going on for four weeks, and it was falling apart because all these delegates were at each other's necks. And it was none other than Benjamin Franklin that addresses the president of the convention, George Washington, who we think of as the most godly of them all. And Franklin says to Washington, Sir, how is it that we have not once called upon the father of lights to illuminate our understanding? This is Franklin calling out Jeff, uh, Washington. Or have we forgotten when we started our struggle against Great Britain, how we met in this very chamber for prayer, seeking his protection? Sir, those prayers were heard and were graciously answered. Or do we believe that we no longer need his assistance? Sir, I have lived a long life. And the longer I live, the more assured I am of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can be built without his aid? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain that build it. If we proceed to build this endeavor without him, without his concurring aid, we will fare no better than the builders of Babel. He concluded by saying, I beseech you, therefore, that from now henceforth, before we proceed with our deliberations, we meet in this very chamber every morning for prayer, seeking his wisdom and direction. They left the Constitutional Convention under the leadership of Pastor John Witherspoon, one of the framers, for a time of prayer and fasting. They came back in a totally different mood, in total harmony with a spirit of unity on their knees every morning before their deliberation. Seven weeks later, they gave us the greatest document that has ever been written in history outside of the Bible, the Constitution of the United States of America. I believe without a shadow of a doubt that the Constitution of the United States of America is a divinely inspired document because it was forged on the knees of the framers. They were on their knees seeking God for revelation, and revelation is what they got. You know, as I travel around the world, do you realize what the average lifespan of a constitution around the world is? 17 years. As a matter of fact, I was in Peru, oh, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, and uh, I was doing a pastor's conference there, and I was invited to speak in, at Congress. And a page took me to do, give me a tour of the congressional building. She took me to a, bill, to a room that they call the Constitutional Room. And she said to me, well, very proud. I mean, she was beaming. We have had 16 constitutions, 
and our new president will be writing a new one. And I smiled at her, and, and I said, well, we have had only one constitution, and it's lasted over 230 years. By the way, this year, we will be celebrating in September the 235th year of our constitution. It's lasted 20 times longer than any other constitution. Why? Because it was based on the word of God. I'm going to close with a scripture. Galatians chapter 5. So anyway, before I do that, I told you that your vote is a seed. You must go to the polls and vote. See that little sticker there? It says, I voted. You need to have one of those on your sleeve by Tuesday. There is an election on Tuesday. Righteousness must prevail. Righteousness exalts a nation. But sin is a reproach to any people. So you need to vote, and you need to vote for righteousness' sake. Vote for men and women that will uphold the principles of the word of God. Okay, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has set you free, and do not entangle yourselves again with the yoke of bondage. Sometimes we self-impose ourselves a yoke of bondage by being inactive, by going along to get along. No, we cannot. Remember, Pastor, I think it was Greg talking about our, you know, that we have a responsibility. We are ambassadors for Christ. We have to stand for righteousness' sake. We are God's representatives upon here on earth. And we must stand for righteousness' sake. So you need to go to the polls and vote, and vote according to righteousness. You know, Proverbs chapter 6 talks about seven things that God hates. One of those is hands that shed innocent blood. What blood could be more innocent than that of an unborn child? Over 62 million babies have been murdered by abortion. Under no circumstances, you as a Christian can vote for a pro-abortionist candidate. If you do, you got blood in your hands. You become complicit in the murder of 62 million babies. We need to vote and vote righteousness' sake. So, but we self-impose a, a yoke of bondage by our inactivity. We must break that bond up and just be bold and righteous. Now, let me quote this in context. Because in context, Paul was talking in Galatians 5.1 about the bondage of sin. The bondage of living on earth without the forgiveness that only comes through Jesus Christ. You know, God is perfect. God is righteous. God is holy. But God's holiness, God's perfectness, cannot commune with imperfection. So, because of our sin, we would be doomed to expend eternity separated from God. But if you could describe God by one word, it would be love. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says that God is love. 
So God's love wants to be reciprocated. He wants to love you for all eternity in his presence. But our sin separated us from God. So God was, you could say, in a dilemma. His love longs to commune with us for all eternity. But his justice would demand that we would be separated from him forever. He solved that dilemma by coming to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, born of a virgin so he would not inherit the sinful nature of man. Living upon this earth as a man, fully God but fully man, perfect without sin, to go to a cross and become your substitute and my substitute. And Jesus hung on a cross and all of our sins, as a matter of fact, much more than all of our sins, all of our sicknesses, all of our diseases were laid upon Jesus. He literally became sin for us. And as a matter of fact, the Bible says that between 12 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the afternoon, there was total darkness upon the face of the earth. And I believe that that is when Jesus literally became sin. And of course, the righteousness of God cannot commune with sin. And so God the Father turned his back on God the Son. And for the first time in all eternity, the communion between God the Father and God the Son was broken. The Bible says that for God, a day is like a thousand years. So it must have felt like eternity for Jesus on the cross without the communion with God the Father to where he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, he knew what it, co it would cost when he sweat blood in Gethsemane. And it was much more than the nails and the whipping. It was that separation. But because of love, he was willing to take the full judgment of God. The judgment that you and I would deserve fell upon Jesus. And the last thing Jesus said at the cross was, it is finished. He did it all. Salvation, healing, and deliverance was all provided for you at the cross. You don't have to earn it. As a matter of fact, there's no way you can earn it. Religion tells you you have to earn it. Forget religion. Religion is the biggest enemy of Christianity. It is a gift. All you have to do is receive it. If you do not, every eye closed, please. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, or if you say, well, I really don't know. I really don't know if, if, uh, if I die today, if I would be in the presence of God. If that is you, nobody's looking. Would you raise your hand? I want to pray for you. I see those hands. You can put your hand now. I want to say a prayer. And I want to ask everyone to please repeat the prayer with me out loud to make it easier for those who are praying this prayer for the first time. Thank you, Father. All of us, all of us, please say it out loud so we help those people that are doing it for the first time. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Father. 
that you love me so much that you send your son Jesus Christ to go to a cross on my behalf and all of my sins all of my iniquities were laid upon Jesus and Jesus went through death the grave and hell to pay for my sins and the proof that the payment was complete was that you raised him from the dead on the third day. I now receive that payment on my behalf. And I confess Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name. Amen.